If you will, please turn in your copy of your scriptures to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, it's the sixth book of the Bible, found in the Old Testament. Um, we're reading through historical narrative here, so the passage of scripture will be a little longer. Uh, so we invite you to look on a copy of the scriptures. If you don't have one, there should be one in the chairs in front of you, and I believe in the Pew Bibles there on page 187. 187. We are in a sermon series in the book of Joshua. And today we're in chapter 2. This is God's word. Let me read it for us this morning. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho Behold, men of Israel have come here to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men whom you have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof and hid them in the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, and whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, I are alive for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when when Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go to the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother and your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. 
But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in your house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the windows. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, Yahweh has given the land into our hands. And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Let's pray. Father, as we read this story, as we study this story in your great plan of redemption, Father, we know that this is your divine truth. And it is applicable to your people of old and to your people today. And so, Father, will you lay up the truths that you would have for us here upon our hearts and help us to faithfully follow and worship you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Those were the words penned by a man named John Newton, who you may recall from church history, was a former British slave trader, and he was radically converted to a life of ministry and service to God And he knew something about the amazing grace of God, which inspired him to pen those words. That God would save him despite his horrible, wretched past was, in fact, the very definition of what amazing grace is. Truly, if we look at it, what amazing grace that God would save any of us. But sometimes, let's be honest, we are quick to make judgment about ourselves and certainly about others according to the lifestyle that they may live or their past. We may think things like they're just too far gone or too bad to be saved. But the truth is this, and this is the truth that I believe this story is going to teach us that no one is beyond the saving reach of God's grace. Let me repeat that. It's worth our consideration. No one, no one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. Jesus made this absolutely clear in the gospel accounts. After he had called one of his first disciples, Levi, you remember Levi? He was part of the Roman IRS, you know? Not a very great profession, not well loved in society. And there were some scribes and Pharisees, you know, these real religious type. They were kind of appalled that this teacher named Jesus would would hang out with sinners, that he would associate himself with these type of people. And in response to their disdain for his ministry, what did Jesus say to them? He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came not to call the righteous and those who thought that they were perfect standing before God. He came to call those who knew they needed salvation. 
It is those who have the most to lose who have the most to gain when God extends His amazing grace into their lives. Is it not? And in this episode here in Joshua chapter 2, we have a wonderful testimony to God's saving grace in the life of the last person you would expect to demonstrate true faith. A shady lady named Rahab, who was, in fact, a prostitute. So, as we look back at the story, for those who would say the Bible is boring, they haven't read it before. Look at this story. Look at what's going on here in Joshua chapter 2. This is anything but boring. Look at this. We have spies. I mean, who doesn't like spy movies? We have some shady characters. We have a, a jealous ruler. We have a covert military operation. We have intelligence gathering. We have espionage, military strategy, all the makings of a good action movie, right? That's what's going on in the story. But let's be sure to say that this story is not here just for our amusement, right? This is not just here so that we can say, hey, isn't that neat? As with all of the biblical stories, they're all part of the great story of redemption. And this story here is to show us the amazing grace of a sovereign God in the lives of his people. There is a a ton that we could discuss and talk about here in Joshua chapter 2, but time will not allow us. So we're going to focus on the heart of this passage, which is found in the very center of this chapter here in verses 8 through 14. And these verses center around the amazing profession of faith made by a prostitute, nonetheless named Rahab. So by way of reminder, where are we in this story? Where are we in the book of Joshua? Joshua has now taken command of the armies of Israel. And his job is to lead the people of God into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, to possess the land by conquest. And that will, of course, start as they cross over the River Jordan with Jericho. We'll get to that here in a few weeks. But it's important to note that the promised land was not some like empty theme park over there beyond the Jordan that was just waiting for people to come and enjoy all its thrills and all of its attractions. That's not what's going on here. No, there were actually cities there in the promised land that were possessed by real people who had lives, but who were pagans nonetheless. It's important to note that this was actually Yahweh God's land. And way, way back at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 12, Yahweh God had promised this land to Abraham and to his people to make them a great nation. And it was always Yahweh God's plan that his people should inhabit this land, and now it must be possessed by conquest. It's important to note that as we work our way through the book of Joshua, that it is often, it is Yahweh God who is doing most of the work. It is Yahweh God who is directly doing the fighting and delivering the land into the hands of his people. It doesn't mean that military might and military prowess will not come into play on the part of his people. But here by divine wisdom, Joshua sends spies into the land and even sends them to the house of a prostitute. Now this is good strategy if you think about it. These 
Jewish men, they would have been noticed in a foreign land. People would have known that they were foreigners. They couldn't have gotten in and out very secretly. So we have some good espionage going on here, some strategy, because no one would pay attention or notice some unsuspecting travelers visiting the home of a prostitute. But what we don't expect is what this prostitute will actually share by way of a profession of faith when she helps these spies spy out the city of Jericho. Rahab came to the spies upon her roof before they laid down for the night, and she professed her knowledge of God and her knowledge of God's plans. She says in verse 8, if you look there in this passage, that she knows that Yahweh God has given them the land. And the word in Hebrew here for the word know, it insinuates that she has personal knowledge. She has intimacy about who God is and what he's going to do. What he's going to do. She believes it and is convinced of it. And so let's, let's look at her profession of faith. Let's ask some, some questions about what she knows. What does Rahab know? How, how do we know she is genuinely converted And what does a genuine profession of faith look like as we look at verses 8 through 14? The first there, let's look at the several parts of Rahab's confession of faith. Look at verse 9 specifically. She says, I know that Yahweh, we talked about this last time, that capital L-O-R-D, that's the covenant name of God. She confesses that she knows the name of God. She knows Yahweh God's name. She's not talking about Baal or any other false gods of the land of Canaan. She uses the divine covenant name of Yahweh God four times in this passage. It's a name that really would have only primarily been known to the people of Israel, to true worshipers of Yahweh. It was a Hebrew name. And isn't it amazing that a non-Jew, a foreigner, and a shady character nonetheless, would know and use this covenant name of God. She professed his name. Second thing about her profession here is that she knows that Israel is to be feared because of Yahweh. She understands something about the power and the might of God. Look there in verses 9 through 10 when she says that that she'd heard about what God had done for them that the people of the land were melting away kind of in fear. I mean, this is kind of a, 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 maybe a Jewish way of saying shaking in their boots, you know. They were, they were scared. She knew of how Yahweh God with a mighty hand had delivered them out of Egypt with the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. She knew about their Transjordanian conquest before they were to enter the land, how they defeated and destroyed the kings of the Amorites. And she tells that fear had fallen upon the city of Jericho because of their reputation. Could you imagine, if you will? Think about this. Think about the fear, (laughs) the shaking in their boots, their hearts melting in fear, knowing that not only is there an invading army coming to possess their land, but they have knowledge that their God actually fights with them. He's not like this totem pole or this good luck charm that they're rubbing and hope will give them favor. He is actually doing some of the fighting for them. 
She describes the terror of the people of their kingdom as their hearts melting with fear. The third thing she professes there in verse 11, and this is amazing. Think about this. She knows that Yahweh God is the only God. Look at that. She says, we know that the Yahweh God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. There you go. She confesses. Yahweh God, he's God with a capital G. Okay? He is not a little God. He is not like the God of the corn or, you know, of fishing. He is the God of all, the Lord of heaven and earth. It's a remarkable statement that she makes here. It actually only shows up a few times in the Old Testament. And it's an all-inclusive summary of who God is and his wonderful majesty. And it's just, this is just one of the ways that we understand the conquest of the promised land that's going to take place over the book of Joshua because it is Yahweh's land. He owns it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Rahab professes this. The fourth thing we can note about her profession, and this even again is even more remarkable to show her faith, she knows that covenant protection is needed for her family. You know, what would a, a prostitute or a shady character, they, most of the time they're just looking out for themselves, right? But here Rahab sees that she demonstrated kind of a covenant understanding of, of who God is and what he is going to do by asking protection for her family. So we know for sure she had to be a Presbyterian, right? <laughs> no. no, she wanted God's, his love, his protection to come to her family. She, she kind of includes everybody, my, my mother, my father, my brothers, all of their, their children. W- would you please protect them, she asked of these spies. This has got to be thinking about infant baptism, how, much, how important it is when we bring our children for baptism We bring them asking God's covenant promises to extend even to our children, knowing, knowing that one day they still have to make that profession of faith. But we want God's covenant protection over our families, over our children. Rahab professed knowledge of this. How do we know that she was genuinely converted? Can God truly save someone like Rahab? Well, the New Testament seems to think so. Three times Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament, in Hebrews, in Matthew, and in James. And in all three places, she is recognized for her actions as a genuine testimony of saving faith. Her willingness to help the spies of Israel is a demonstration of her saving faith, of her confession that she makes in verse 11, that Yahweh God is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. And then in James chapter 2, we read something that can sound curious to us if we take it out of context. James actually uses her and as an example that salvation apart from works is dead. He says, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So we could read that and think, wait a minute, is James teaching salvation by works? Well, of course not. Because the whole book of James is to making this theological point that faith without works is dead. 
In other words, true saving faith is always followed by actions, by bearing fruit, right? That's what Jesus taught. And in Rahab's case, her actions backed up her good confession. She helped out the spies. She wanted to help God's people. She wanted to act on the knowledge that she had of who Yahweh God is. So it's easy for us to read a story like this in Joshua chapter 2 and, and become uneasy. I mean, how did this shady lake lady make her way into the biblical story of redemption, right? I mean, that's not very sanitary, is it? And it's easy for us to fall back into this thought process that the church is only for respectable people, that the church is only for good people, people who've lived moral lives their whole lives, people who are affiliated with a, a certain race or with a certain politi- po- politics. But this is certainly not the teaching of Jesus, is it not? Remember, Jesus came to call those who were sick. Rather, we should see Rahab's story here as a testimony of God's sovereign grace. God's amazing grace even extended to Rahab, the prostitute. She went on to become an ancestor of King David. And Matthew records in his genealogy that she was even in that great line of King David, whom we know King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come. And the Gospel of Matthew does not shy away one bit from including her in that line. Amazing. It's an amazing story of redemption. Her story, in some ways, is our story. Her story is the story of redemption. God's sovereign grace is for sinners. It's for those who need Him. For those who who love Him and who want Him and who seek Him out. And God's amazing grace is for anyone who would profess true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does a a true profession look like? I mean, this is something we really need to understand and, and grapple with, especially as the people of God, especially in this day and age when it is getting harder and harder to pretend to be a Christian. It's getting harder and harder to just go to church and go through the motions. We must have a true profession. All believers should make these basic aspects of true saving faith. And Rahab actually demonstrates this. Look at it. Let's look at it in Old Testament terms here for a minute. She professes that Yahweh is the only true God. She professes that Yahweh is holy and powerful. He can do anything and has done everything. She professes that Yahweh is merciful, that He is loving, that He can and will show mercy. She professes that Yahweh will judge sinners because He is a just God. She professes that salvation is found only in those who take refuge in Yahweh God. Amazing, these parts of her profession. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul explains what this looks like for us. The church today in Romans 10, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
is what true saving faith looks like. But we must go one step further. We must believe and we must profess and confess our sins. But there must be something that follows that, right? There must be fruit. There must be fruit in the Christian life. There must be demonstrable acts that show true faith. This is why the Apostle Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 2 that, yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but we were saved unto good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. There's this natural progression of our salvation, right? We profess, we confess, we say that Jesus is Lord, we believe in Him, but then we want to serve Him. And for Rahab, it was a willingness to help and assist the spies and to show and to demonstrate her true saving faith in Yahweh God by, by helping the people of God and being on mission with God. But what about you? What about me? What in your life are you doing to demonstrate good works? Not to earn your salvation, but to demonstrate your love and, and worship of God, of who He is and what He has done for you. Perhaps it's showing kindness to a, to a neighbor. Maybe someone you know that is really struggling. Perhaps it's responding to God's call and mission some way. Is he calling you to go to Panama City and to get dirty and to help out? Perhaps there's this ministry that God has laid on your heart for years and years now. and you, You've not acted on it. You haven't done anything about it. Maybe God is calling you and moving you to do that. The question that we have to ask, and this goes back to one of our membership vows, will you endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ by the way you live your life? Will you actually be the hands and feet of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because good works do follow a true profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Let me make one final point here in this story. Uh, if you remember in this story, there's actually a plan that is made by the spies of Israel and by Rahab to spare her family once the city is delivered into the hands of Israel. And that scarlet, uh, scarlet cord will hang from her home to let the invading armies know that Rahab's home and the people that are in it are to be spared from destruction. Whole theologies have been created around this scarlet cord in Rahab's story. Some want to relate this scarlet cord, that being red, to the, to the blood of Christ. Uh, others want to say that it points to the, the bloodline of Christ, kind of the genealogies. But the, those connections are not easily made here in Scripture. I think perhaps a better way to understand the biblical meaning of this scarlet cord is to look back at the story we read earlier in the service of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. You remember the mighty way that Yahweh God would deliver His people out of Egypt through the plagues, and that final plague was to be the one to end them all. It was a devastating plague. The angel of death would passed throughout the land and would kill the firstborn of all people and all animals to where there would be a cry go up in Egypt that had never been heard before. But God had a plan of how his people would be saved. 
of how his people would be spared. And he gave specific instruction that an animal sacrifice should be made and that blood should be spread upon the door frames of the houses of the people of Israel. And when the angel of death would come through, whenever it saw that blood as that sign of salvation, he would pass over those homes and they would be spared from the judgment. In the same way here, God's judgment was coming in the form of conquest on the land of Jericho. And salvation is needed to keep the promise to Rahab and her family. And so that scarlet cord would serve as a sign that those who were in her house would be spared from the coming judgment. And of course, that is symbolic of our hope, is it not? Only in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can we be saved from the judgment of God. Only by the intercession of Jesus can we be made right before a holy God. Only in Christ can we be saved from our sin. As the great heart of that gospel message in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this is the story of amazing grace, right? This is the great story of redemption we find even here in Joshua chapter 2. May God help us to be thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ by living lives that show true faith and trust in Him. Let's pray. Oh, our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. And we thank you that we find it even in unexpected places here in Joshua chapter 2. Lord, we see that you, you did a great work of salvation in the life of this woman and her family because of your love, because of your grace. But Lord, we see too our need to profess true saving faith and act upon your calling in our lives. So would you give us strength and courage to do so in thankfulness to who you are and what you have done. We thank you and praise you for the blood of Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.